0: Pull the trigger. Don't think about it too much. Analyze it. Obviously do your math, mitigate your downside, But the easiest thing in the world to do is nothing.
1: Quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello,
2: best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm here with today's guest, Jacob Vanderslice. Jacob is joining us from Denver, Colorado. He's the principal of Van West Partners, which focuses on acquisition and management of self storage centers. Jacob's portfolio consists of $195 million of real estate assets. Jacob, welcome. Before we get started, tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now.
0: Ash, good to see you. Thanks for having us on today. Yeah, born and raised in Denver. I've got two kids that are almost three and 18 months, so they keep us busy at home. We got started doing single family fixed flips about 15 years ago. And we scaled that business up. We've done well over 1,200 all over the country, mainly in the Denver area. We got into commercial real estate in 13 and 14, and we started doing adaptive reuse retail projects. So basically repositioning old warehouses into multi-tenant experience-based retail, breweries, yoga studios, gyms, coffee shops, held on to some of those and sold off a bunch of those as well. And then we got into self-storage in 2015 and kind of grew the platform from there and Self-storage is really our main line of business. We dabble in some residential development on the side, but we are mainly self-storage investors, owners, and operators.
2: Jacob, Denver, Colorado, I think you guys invented repurposing warehouses to mixed-use buildings.
0: That's right. We were a thought leader there, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So
2: 1,200 single-family homes. That didn't happen overnight. Take me through that journey.
0: I got started when I was in my early 20s and just kind of experimented with a few deals and took a lot of hard knocks during the downturn. I learned a lot. I would do it again and kind of grew the platform from there. Most of our deals, we were sourcing at the trustee sales. And I would say that was probably 90% of our acquisitions were sourced on the courthouse steps. And that kind of dried up about three or four years ago. There were just less trustee sales. So we started doing more direct to seller marketing that we learned about in our various mastermind groups. and. Scaled it up from there. We've gotten a little further away from that business in the last year, just because inventory is so tight. We're mainly focused on our commercial line of business, but it's a fun business. We know it and love it and came up from our roots in single family. It's a a great asset class.
2: Who is the we that you're mentioning?
0: I've got two partners. One of my partners is Aaron Westfall. We go back to junior high together, high school, college roommates. And he joined me full-time in real estate in 2009. He quit his job as a Qualcomm senior engineer. And we have another partner, Wade Buxton. So there's three of us. And Wade used to work for us back in 11 and 12. And we got into the commercial world a little bit further. Wade had some expertise there and really helped us figure out the business. And we became three equal partners back in 2014 and have been going ever since.
2: An almost $200 million portfolio. What's the high-level breakout of those asset classes?
0: We've got a handful of retail projects in Denver. I would say they're probably... 13 or $14 million in gross value, so a relatively small piece of our portfolio. We've got a portfolio of single-family rentals, roughly a dozen of those, not very many around Denver. And the balance of that is self-storage. We're, we're in multiple different states. We have facilities ranging from anywhere from 25,000 square feet up to 115,000 square feet, a bunch of deals in the Midwest and Southeast, and of course, here in Denver.
2: So you've seen a lot of different asset classes, and I'm assuming you're getting the highest and best return on your money with self-storage?
0: We like self-storage because it's historically resistant to downturns. We started studying the asset class around 2014, thinking that a recession was coming and it was a while before that happened. And obviously say no more there. We like the scalability of the asset class as well. And we like the predictable, repeatable income streams. That's really why we got into it. And it's been a good place to be the last couple of years, especially in 2020.
2: Is it the highest return or is it more a hedge on a possible downturn coming and still having a secure investment?
0: It depends on how someone might define return. If return is total multiple, like a big home run in a short amount of time, it's probably not the best use of your capital. If return is more of a calculation of a balance of income and upside, we think self-storage is a great vehicle for that. We're very income focused investors and one of the main mistakes we've made in our real estate careers is often transacting too quickly, meaning we buy a deal, make it better and sell it. And there's a good gain on it and you move on, but then you have tax liability, you have downtime on your cash and you've got the risk of a new investment to redeploy your cash into. That's why we like the longer term hold that self-storage offers with the elements of income, but as well as capital appreciation.
2: Do you syndicate these deals?
0: We two different things. So we do single asset syndications, And then we have two self-storage funds. We closed our last self-storage fund in August of 2020, launched another one in December of 2020. And that fund is underway. That's a $30 million capital raising target in equity, which will equate to about $100 million in total cost. And year to date, we've deployed just under $30 million in total costs. We're about a third of the way through. We're hoping to close that out by the end of this year.
2: Jacob, what kind of returns can a passive investor get? Cash on cash returns.
0: As I mentioned, we're very focused on income. So within the context of our funds, we're not doing any heavy lifting value add, like ground up development or major expansion. So we're basically buying existing storage facilities, implementing a nominal capital improvement plan, and then really leveraging our management platform to grow income and grow NOI. So we have an 8% preferred return. And then after the 8 Investor capital accounts are paid down to zero with any subsequent distributions. So equity is returned. And then every distribution thereafter is 70-30. So we're targeting a cash on cash yield along the way to investors of eight to 10%, and then 16 to 18% net over the life of the fund. So and roughly half of that return is from distributions from operational cash flow. And the balance of that is either from a refinance or from a sale.
2: So once you buy this storage unit, is there an end of life after five, seven, eight years? Or do you just hold it and see how the market reacts?
0: There's two types of funds. One fund type is an open-ended fund. And that means the fund is constantly raising new capital at new valuations and making new acquisitions. And there's a closed-ended fund, which is what we are. And a closed-ended fund merely means that there's a defined period to raise the equity and deploy the capital. And once that period's expired, you're not raising any additional equity or buying new deals. The fund continues to operate, but it's just close to new investment. In terms of the life cycle or the life period of the fund, we don't have a specific date where we have to liquidate the asset base. And we really did that by design. Let's say we were going to put a blind in the sand of five years from now, for example. Well, if the value of the assets for some reason deteriorates, but we're still getting great income, great dividend yield, it would not make sense to have to sell into a bad environment. So we're forecasting a six to eight year life cycle for the fund and with distributions along the way, pay down to capital accounts and then obviously a hopeful pop at the end when we dispose of the asset base.
2: Got it. So self-storage, it seems like everybody's chasing these deals. How do you find self-storage deals?
0: Deal flow has been increasingly challenging, like it has been in a lot of asset classes. But the number of investment shops out there that had capital allocations to like hospitality, retail, office, and those have obviously taken big hits in 2020. So they've shifted their capital allocation to self storage because it's been fairly defensible and it performed well last year and continues to. So deal flow is tight. So to source deals, we do a couple of different things. We do a little bit of direct to seller marketing. We placed about $10 million off a direct mail, maybe $5,000 in direct mail. It was basically a business letter saying, Hey, we're not brokers. We want to buy your storage facility. You might be surprised with our offer. And then beyond that, it's a lot of broker networking. I hate using the term off-market deals because sometimes an off-market deal is worse than a marketed deal, but we have gotten some good off-market deal just with broker relationships. So yeah, typical deal flow practices, just direct to seller marketing and networking with national brokers.
2: So a lot of our best ever listeners may have graduated from single family, some duplexes, triplexes, smaller multifamilies, and they come across a self-storage facility near where they live or invest. And let's say it's a smaller unit. What's small, 50, 60 units?
0: Yeah. In terms of unit count varies, but in terms of square feet, I would say a pretty small deal is about 25,000 square feet.
2: Okay. What's your advice to them? What do you look for? And I think a lot of people think that self-storage is kind of hands-off, like car washes and laundromats, which are not by any means passive. It's a job. What advice do you have? And I'm in the same boat. I've looked at these deals and I don't know what's involved with running a smaller one-off self-storage unit.
0: Yeah. Self-storage is not passive and it's not hands-off. Building wealth in real estate is not easy, regardless of the asset class. There are really very few fire and forget deals out there. So self-storage is very operationally intensive and I would liken self-storage, it might seem like a stretch, but I would liken it most to hospitality In that your rates are constantly changing. You have peaks and troughs of demand based on the time of the year, summer is higher demand than winter time, for example, and you constantly have customers moving in and moving out every day. So in self-storage, all the leases are month to month. So You have folks stay there for three months, they move out, somebody else moves in. So you have this constant churn and customer service is really important as well. So good Google reviews, keeping people happy, solving customer complaints, like if the gate system goes down or whatever might've happened, you have to have a good operations team overseeing that. But if you're looking at a deal in your backyard and you're considering buying it, the first thing you need to look at are supply ratios. Self-storage is very local supply sensitive. So we track supply ratios in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about seven square feet per capita of self-storage. Once you get into a submarket over 10, you start to see a decline in rates and occupancy. And then on the other side of it, once you're below maybe six square feet per capita, you start to see more buoyant rates and more consistent occupancy. So the first thing you got to look at is the supply ratio and the one, three and five mile trade radius. And if that makes sense, you've got to think about how you're going to operate it. And you've got two options there. You can hire a third-party management platform, which you'll pay for. And we found that over the years, there's a lot of good third-party platforms out there, but we found that nobody cares about your deal more than you do, which is why we self-manage. It's very simple human nature. As an owner, you care more than a third party, no matter how great the third party might be. So, you got to think about how you're going to operate it. So, you could hire a third party and you could have a higher expense load because of that, because you're paying them fees and marketing allocations, or you could run it yourself. And a number of self storage facilities out there today, including deals in our portfolio, with the technology that's available, you can run these things effectively without having a full time on site staff member. If not having an onsite staff member at all, you need somebody for repairs and maintenance and quality control checks, but it is possible to connect the gate system, for example, to an internet connection, have your customers lease their units online and not have to have a person there. So it's by no means passive, but if you set up your platform well, you can effectively run a facility without having to pay somebody full-time to be there.
2: A lot of questions on that advice. Thank you for that. Is there a website or somewhere you can go to get those metrics on the supply side?
0: Yeah, they're available in a couple of different places. One of them is CoStar, which is kind of the commercial MLS. Another one is Crexie, which is similar to CoStar. All you're looking at really, if you want to do it manually without using a third party website, you research the number of storage facilities in that given submarket. You figure out how many square feet roughly those storage facilities are, and you can do that with aerial mapping and Google Maps measurements. Then you figure out the population in that one, three and five mile trade radius, and you just do some quick math and you figure out what the supply ratios are.
2: Thank you. So if I buy my neighborhood self-storage place five miles down the road, is there a minimum number of units or square footage that a management company would take on? And I'm assuming there's national management companies
0: that do this. There are national management companies that do this, uh, large publicly traded REITs not only operate their own portfolios, but they do third-party management. While their call centers and their technology are very robust, we found that their expense loads are rather bloated. And we've also found that within self-storage, there are a number of ancillary revenue streams that really add up to be a meaningful percentage of your top-line revenue. And some of the third-party, bigger operators that third-party manage do not allow their owners to participate in those revenue streams. So you're leaving quite a bit of money on the table if you want to third-party manage it, I would recommend researching a smaller operator in your market and engaging them to run your facility. If you bring in one of the big guys, especially on a small deal, your expense allocations and your loads are just going to make it really tough for you to make any kind of rational income stream.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if best ever listeners buy one of these starter facilities, let's call them, am I assuming that we're putting in a full-time employee or a part-time employee?
0: You will need somebody over there, whether you run it completely remotely with your technology platform, you'll still need somebody there to go do quality control checks, verify, uh, do unit walks, make sure that customers have moved out and moved in like they said they would. You need to monitor the security system, the camera system. But unless you're buying a larger facility, and by larger facility, I might mean a fully interior climate controlled facility, you're likely not going to have to have a full-time staff member there answering the phone and doing move-ins.
1: So a lot of automation can be A lot of automations available
0: out there for sure.
1: We'll get back to the show in just 2 minutes, but first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. As your portfolio grows, you need financial management services you can rely on to help you save money and continue making the right choices for your company's future. Realestateaccounting.co's top-tier CFO team uses their deep industry and operating experience to guide real estate syndicators, investors, and family offices through every pivotal moment and crucial decision. Their fractional CFO services include budget to actual, cash flow and distributions, and reporting and valuation. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash CFO to find out why REA is one of the fastest growing real estate accounting companies around. The real estate experts provide timely analysis and consultations to help you make the most informed decisions possible. See and trust where your portfolio is headed joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved.
2: Similar to multifamilies, when you have 40 or 50 units, it's hard to get a full-time maintenance person. You get over 100, you get some economies of scale. What are your challenges with self-managing your facilities?
0: Well, we've grown our management company by leaps and bounds in the last three years. And just like growing anything, it's... It's been somewhat painful. We've learned a lot along the way. One of the challenges we initially encountered is we thought it would be easy to remote manage our smaller facilities without a full-time staff member there and basically have 1099 rovers who you pay hourly to go by and do checks. We found that over time that not having control over your employees was kind of a detriment to the performance of the facility. So we brought on full-time W-2 employees and amortized their wages across multiple locations. So that was a big challenge initially. Another challenge we encounter pretty consistently is when we buy a new facility or a portfolio of facilities, the transition from the old management platform to ours, there's often a lot of friction there. So you're getting hundreds or thousands of customers converted over. Now you're making your payment here. You're not making your payment here. And you're also coordinating upgrades. Maybe you're doing door swaps where you have to coordinate with your customer base to make sure their contents are in place when you swap the door out for them. So that's kind of a consistent source of friction for us and we're getting better at our transitions. We just bought a $20 million portfolio yesterday in Michigan and we shipped our operations team out there. We've got two deals outside Detroit and three in Grand Rapids. So they're onboarding our new employees out there and getting them trained up installing new signage and just kind of getting everything transitioned over. But that's always a challenge, whether it's any asset class, new management transitions can be difficult.
2: You're right. This sounds a lot more like the hospitality business than it does a passive investment.
0: Yes. You can do it in a passive way and you can certainly make your life easier. But once again, creating wealth anywhere is not simple. There's operations involved. There's risk. We've got homeless problems in some of our facilities especially our urban infill locations. So we'll have guys sleeping in units. Sometimes they'll be plugging in their iPhones into a power source and staying there when they're not supposed to. We even had a guy order a pizza once to one of the storage units, which was uh, never seen that before. <laughs> yeah.
2: What's the average length that somebody rents a storage unit?
0: Have you ever leased a self-storage unit, by the way?
2: In college over the summer, put my okay. stuff in there that I didn't want my parents to see. <laughs> yeah, sure.
0: Sure. Yep. Same here. So most of our customers think they're going to be there for less time than they actually stay. So our average duration of tenancy right now within our portfolio is about nine months. And most people think they're going to be there for three, but it hits their credit card every month that auto drafts. Their stuff is out of sight, out of mind. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with moving into somewhere else. So by and large, folks stay longer than they think they will. So it's around nine months on average for us.
2: And the so-called eviction process, is that a big deal or is it just very systemized where if somebody doesn't pay, there's a process?
0: Yeah, I'm going to sound like a dirty capitalist here, but there are no fair housing laws in self-storage. So if you don't pay, our first line of defense is your gate code gets shut off and you can't get into the building or into the facility. If that goes long enough, you get an overlock on your unit. So if you do get in, you can't get to your contents. And then if it goes a little bit further, there's an auction process where you publish something in the local news publication saying we're auctioning the storage unit, auction buyers come in and make bids on stuff. If there's more proceeds than they owe in rent, it goes back to the customer, but that almost never happens. So the point of the auctions really is not so much getting income from their contents, it's getting a non-paying customer out, getting their contents out and getting a paying customer in place of them.
2: And how long does that process typically last
0: from? It's, point- um, if you're doing it fairly efficiently, it's 30 to 45 days from when they roll over for the first time to when the auction might happen.
2: Okay. So when you look at new deals, obviously the supply metrics are significant. What are the other elements that you look for to figure out whether it's a good deal or not?
0: Well, primarily beyond supply, it's just good nuts and bolts real estate. So is their density, is there population growth? Is it a state with an oppressive tax situation or people flame? Like, for example, not to knock New York and California, but like New York and California. So we like states with growth. At the submarket level, density is more important than income. Some operators say that there's a relationship between self storage rents and income. Some say it's 2%. So if a household is making 100 grand a year, they can afford $2,000 a year in self storage rent. We haven't really seen a direct correlation with that, but we've certainly seen a correlation with density. So you need to look at locations with rooftops and people nearby. We stay away from locations that are overly rural or kind of in the middle of nowhere, even though they might have a very high yield on cost. There's not a lot of buyers to buy that facility down the roads. So even if you're stabilizing to a 10 cap, you might not sell it for any more than a 10 cap later because there's only two or three guys out there in a small town in Kansas who would buy it from you versus an urban infill location in say Memphis, Tennessee.
2: And does the age of the surrounding population have an influence on Um, running storage units? We haven't
0: seen a direct correlation with that. Not exactly. It's primarily rooftops and density.
2: Okay. So boomers versus people in their twenties.
0: So our millennial customers are typically keeping their seasonal gear in there, or maybe they have a small apartment where they can't fit their stuff in. So They keep their skis and their mountain bikes and their tents and their camping gear and their golf clubs and their storage unit. They come and go as they please to get it out. And our boomer population, a lot of them are kind of moving, maybe they're downsizing. So really our customer base covers all the demographics for the most part.
2: And then do you have to advertise in this business or is it just drive-by traffic that sees you?
0: Yeah, it used to be mainly drive-by. And now I think well over 75% of our customers have their initial reaction with us online. Even my parents who are almost 70, if they're going to look for a storage unit, they're probably going to get on their phone, get on Google Maps and look at reviews. So most people find us online. There is a visibility component too. It's obviously better to have a facility with a big sign on a major thoroughfare or a major highway that doesn't hurt but most of our customers find us online. And really the three nuts and bolts of self-storage are clean, safe, secure. So clean facility, feels safe, it's well lit. And the security aspect, you see cameras up on the walls, you see a nice gate system. You feel like your contents are secure. Those are really the three things we're trying to achieve.
2: Jacob, some of our best ever listeners, let's say they've done a few years of real estate investing, they're doing well. Would you recommend they go into self-storage? Or is it that much of a specialty where you have to go all or nothing?
0: Yeah, I would not go into self-storage and buy one facility. If you end up buying just one facility, that's okay. But if I was going to go into the business today, I would want to have a more programmatic business plan where I can acquire maybe five facilities within a couple of years in a given sub-market. And like we talked about earlier on multifamily, operating a storage facility has a lot of fixed costs. And you can amortize those fixed costs more effectively in a larger portfolio than you can on a single asset.
2: That makes sense. Jake, what's your best ever real estate investing advice?
0: Pull the trigger. Don't think about it too much. Analyze it, obviously. Do your math. Mitigate your downside. But the easiest thing in the world to do is nothing. Go out and do a deal.
2: Great answer. Jacob, are you ready for the lightning round? I'm all set. Awesome. First, a quick word from our partners.
1: Do you manage your own rental properties? If you do, or if you're about to, I wanna tell you about rent Ready because I'm guessing they have some services that you wish you had. RentReady is a property management software that allows you to manage your business from your computer or phone. With rent Ready, you're able to collect rent online and get paid, find the perfect tenant with the built-in screening and listing service, and get your leases signed with the click of a button. And tenants really love using RentReady's app too, they can pay rent using the card, ACH, cash. They can set up auto pay, get renter's insurance if you require it. And they can even build their credit score through rent Ready's new credit reporting feature. And the best part, RentReady is unlimited. That's right. All this is flat priced. There's no tricks or hidden fees. RentReady is designed for investors who manage their own properties so that you don't have to worry about paying more for building your business. You can start managing and scaling your rental properties without scaling costs. And RentReady has given us an amazing deal to pass on to the Best Ever listeners. You can get RentReady's annual plan for only $54 at RentReady.com when you use our special code BESTEVER. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com with the code B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R at rentready.com to get RentReady's annual plan for only 54 bucks. Did you know that credit checks miss 85% of the information landlords and property managers need to verify new tenants? That's a problem. The solution is Rentify. Rentify provides a platform that allows you to instantly access prospective tenants' financial information and compiles it all into a quick and easy to read report to help you select the highest quality tenants. You can access income, payroll, past rent payments, non-sufficient funds, and overdraft history all in one place. Rentify's reports instantly verify the full financial picture of the tenant so there's no chance of being duped with false information. No one likes to be duped. And the best part is that you can have it all at your fingertips in as little as five minutes. Go check out Rentify at trustrentify.com and stop wasting time and start fast-tracking the tenant screening process with confidence and ease. With Rentify, you'll no longer have to waste hours or even days collecting all the information you need to verify a tenant, which makes life easier for you and your applicants. Visit TrustRentify.com and use the promo code FAIRLESS for 25% off your first purchase. That's dot com and put in the promo code FAIRLESS. That's my last name, F-A-I-R-L-E-S-S for
0: 25% off your first purchase.
2: Jacob, what's the best ever book you recently read?
0: So I am unfortunately a historic nonfiction addict. I don't read a lot of business books or real estate books. And the best one that I've read recently is a book by Hampton Sides, who's an historian. And the book is called In the Kingdom of Ice. It's a great survival story. If you ever think you're having a hard day, read this book. The stuff these guys went through, frozen in the ice, walking a thousand miles into Siberia on foot. A lot of them survived. A lot of them didn't. But I was so inspired by the book. I bought copies for the entire office. And even folks in our office who aren't big readers were just like, man, that was a great book.
2: And it makes self-storage look easy.
0: It does. Anytime I'm complaining one day about whatever issues out there, I just think about what the alternative could be. And I yeah, feel
2: fantastic. Jacob, yeah. what's the best ever way you like to give back?
0: For about 10 years, I did Big Brothers, Big Sisters. It was a great experience. It's a huge time commitment and it's an emotional commitment as well. I want to get back into it with a new kid because my kid's all grown up now, but that was one of the more rewarding programs I've ever been a part of. It's been great.
2: That is great. Jacob, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
0: You hit me via email, which is jacob at vanwestpartners.com or go to LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice, or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com.
2: Jacob, thank you again for being on our show today. You've given us a great walkthrough with your journey from starting with single family homes, going into the redevelopment of warehouses and your incredible journey with self-storage. You've had a lot of value. I've learned a lot where this mindset of maybe it's passive, or maybe I'll just do this one that's down the street. So thank you again for sharing all of your advice with the best ever listeners.
0: Thanks for having us on today, Ash. Appreciate
2: it. Have a best ever day, Jacob.